Before we begin, this is a podcast about terrorism, which means we do talk about acts of terror and extreme violence, sometimes in quite a lot of detail. So you might find some of the following material upsetting. Hello, I'm Adnan Sawa. This is Taking Apart Terror. And is this any way to earn a living? To the Prime Minister of Japan, you have proudly donated 100 million to kill our women and children to destroy the homes of the Muslims. So the life of this Japanese citizen will cost you 100 million. Jihadi John, one of Daesh's most brutal executioners, demanding millions of dollars to save the life of the prisoner in the orange t-shirt kneeling in front of him in the video this was taken from. Whatever your organization's business, it does not come without a cost. And ransom money is just one of this organization's revenue streams. And that is what we're looking at this time. How much do Daesh's operations cost? And where does that money come from? Or as we've asked in the title of this episode, who funds terror? To answer that question, I'm joined by three people who have spent a great deal of time studying violent extremism and how it works. Firstly, two of our regular panellists. Director of the International Centre for the Study of Radicalisation and Political Violence at King's College, Dr Shiraz Ma. Hey Shiraz. Hi, thanks for having me. And Noreen Chowdhury-Fink, Executive Director of the Sufan Centre in New York. Hey Noreen. Hi Adnan, great to see you. And our guest expert this time is Tracy Derner, Director of Financial Integrity and Inclusion at the Global Centre on Cooperative Security. Hello Tracy. Hi Adnan, thank you for having me. Okay, Tracy, let me start with you. We all know that an organisation like Daesh needs money, but how much money does it really need and what does it exactly spend it on? Yeah, so when most people think about terrorism financing, they're thinking about the costs that are associated with launching an attack, right? Um, but that's actually just one aspect of it and an increasingly small one, actually. So putting aside kind of the ideological and political aspects, the most basic goal of a terrorist group is to sustain their operations and expand their reach. So the, the typical way we describe this is as a four-stage cycle, raise, move, store, and use funds. And since the goal of terrorist groups is long-term, they're thinking about financial management in the same way that any business would. We're diversifying funding streams, kind of keeping track of their books, and in this case, concealing the location of assets so they're not confiscated by authorities. Noreen, uh, this might sound like an odd question, but how much does a terrorist attack cost? The cost of a terrorist attack can vary between, you know, the cost of a knife or a machete or the cost of IEDs and, and military grade hardware. So I think we've seen increasingly lower cost and lower tech attacks, you know, as such as many of the ones we've seen in Europe and certainly the UK. So the attacks themselves may cost quite little, but the cost of terrorism is quite high when you want to pay for personnel, uh, you know, accommodations, transit, communications and things like that. Shiraz, we know Daesh has got money, but how much has it actually got? So ISIS had uh, tremendous resources when it was standing as a territorial caliphate straddling Syria and Iraq. Um, but it also had a large financial uh, sort of commitment base as well. It had its fighters uh, on the ground who it had to sustain and increasingly their families. It also had to provide a degree of uh, provision for the people in its territory. So it was both a very rich organization, but it was one that probably had more commitments and outgoings than uh, in inverted commas, a traditional 
uh, organization. And someone described it to me as the world's newest petrostate. So that's a country that gets most of its income from oil. Is that right, Tracy? Is oil their main earner? So in its comparatively brief span of, of territorial rise and fall, it accrued a pretty significant amount of wealth. Um, it came primarily from three main sources. So the first and the one you hear a lot about is oil, oil products and its supply chain. This hit a peak in the summer months of 2014 when they captured some Iraqi oil wells. At that point, you heard that they were taking in somewhere around one to two million dollars per day which amounted to about 500 million in the total of 2015. But that number did drop significantly um, through military interventions that targeted the supply chain. The second big source of wealth was, was taxes and fees. Daesh taxed its population. It levied fees for services, charged tolls on roads and goods passing through its territory. Uh, the estimates for this do vary um, and were heavily influenced by how much territory it controlled. But roughly hovered around 400 million a year. Um, and they also had some significant windfalls in looting and robbery. So about 500 million in cash from bank vaults when it took Mosul, but also non-cash items, things like pillaging food crops and controlling uh, factories to help fund and build the things they required. And then there's some smaller resource streams. Um, kidnapping for ransom is a big one. Um, there's not a lot of data here, but estimates are around 20 to $30 million per year. Another one you heard a bit about was antiquities. So Daesh controlled a number of archaeological sites, and there was the belief that these things might be sold on the black market. More recent analysis indicates that they were selling permits um, to help loot those and charging taxes on transport fees. And then the last and, and the one that supports terrorist groups around the world are donations. So be it people who sympathized with their cause or even states that were interested in kind of a conflict by proxy. Noreen, from what Tracy was saying about like these revenue streams and the biggest one, you know, was oil. Who's buying oil from Daesh? I believe at one time China was buying extensively from them, um, also regional neighbors needing to, to purchase oil. Um, so I think that they, they did not appear to have a shortage of, of clients. You know, at one point in 2015, I think they were raking in two billion. That role of money is really important because the narrative of ISIS was that it's creating a state, which means it also cares for its citizens. So not only is it selling oil and minting money and things like that, but it did have to provide some kind of hospitals, some kind of medical care, some kind of justice. Can I just ask you about the kind of things that um, Daesh was selling, you know, apart from the oil, you know, the antiquities, we saw them stealing history and selling it. How much were they making? It's a very opaque process, right? I mean, we've seen this, you know, previously, whether it's through auction houses, private buyers, a lot of these sales are cloaked in secrecy. So it's difficult to know whether it is really delivering, you know, the, the big money. But then as Tracy and I were pointing out, you don't need a lot of big money wins, you need a steady funding stream. And we don't know how much they have, you know, on Facebook, Twitter, you can actually find sites where people are still looting sites, um, people are selling artifacts. One of the things we talked about in terms of narratives is they were really smart in many ways, you know, when they blew up Palmyra, not only did they make a symbolic statement about their dominance um, over the region and over the art and culture and identity, um, but also they, they literally got a lot of pieces to sell. Palmyra, maybe you remember those headlines. In 2015 and 2017, Daesh occupied this ancient Syrian city. 
a UNESCO World Heritage Site, full of priceless artefacts from its unique blend of Greek, Roman, Persian and Islamic history. They set about destroying those treasures and publicly beheaded its 82-year-old head of antiquities, Khalid al-Assad, when he refused to reveal where he had hidden an important statue. And as Noreen says, what they didn't destroy, they looted. The world's horror at their actions led to the UN Security Council adopting the historic resolution 2347, which condemns the unlawful destruction of cultural heritage in armed conflicts. The international community vowed to work even harder to crack down on the illegal trade in artefacts, and one of the organisations at the centre of this effort is Interpol and Corrado Catesi, the head of the Works of Art unit. I got a chance to talk to him and ask him, what is it that's making this fight more difficult? Well, first of all, that the world is not taking it seriously enough. This field sometimes is considered as a, a knife crime. You used to say in the movie that a crazy collector, addicted collector, wants to have an incredible object of art and to enjoy in his private collection. Unfortunately, the illicit traffic of cartel properties are a serious crime that affect all regions of the world. Sometimes police agencies, as well as customs, are not totally aware about the crimes. Normally, I'm very confident with uh, drugs, uh, guns, uh, uh, human trafficking. But when I impact in this field, in the illicit traffic of cultural property, especially the police, uh, are not so confident. For this reason, it's really important to raise awareness about, uh, about this topic, especially that the illicit traffic of cultural property can finance normally organized crime and may finance so, does he have any idea of the scale of the problem? No one can really give a perfect number about this phenomenon. When you are um, finding uh, tomb and archaeological sites, you never know how many objects you can find in the archaeological areas. Well, an archaeological object, you have to consider not only the value of the objects, the type of objects, but when this illicit activity is carried out in the field, everything around is destroyed. Especially the, the documentation, what the object uh, can tell us about the former civilization. Uh, for sure, what we are assisting is in different online sales uh, that a lot of objects coming from the Mesopotamic area, it means uh, an incredible area where our civilization was, uh, was born, uh, is uh, difficult to find the objects in the illicit market right now. We still... Uh, don't know where uh, the best part of these, uh, these objects are, if these objects are in some deposit waiting for a better time, if these objects were already smuggled into their countries, if the objects are already sold and are still waiting uh, a better time to appear again in the market. Normally, anyway, the, the final buyers are um, private collectors. A lot of the buyers are not asking the document that should be asked when you buy an object of art as requested by Unidrua Convention. The people buy the objects without taking care about the provenience. It's something that the people should do, always. So 
So Tracy, whether they were making money from, say, oil or antiquities or ransoms, where are they keeping it? Do they put it in like a hole in the desert or, or in a bank? It's in part both. We do anticipate that they have a large cash reserve that's being held likely in the remaining core conflict zones or has been smuggled out truly in the form of cash and gold and is currently being held with trusted couriers or operatives. But they did still need to move and use that money. So when they did, you're right, they were using bank accounts, wire transfers. Another really important source was money service businesses or remittance providers. So these are entities that are you know, trust-based. In many cases, they are unregistered or unlicensed, um, or in some cases struggle from weak oversight. Um, and it was through these channels that they were able to transfer funds. And, and it can be those transfers that are most difficult to detect. Okay, so let's talk about detection then. How do we find this money that's moving around and how do we stop it? Noreen, I've heard of something called CFT. What is that? CFT is countering the financing of terrorism. So it's a lot of the, the legal, political and you know practical frameworks we're talking about. There is ATF, anti-terrorism financing, CTF, countering terrorist financing. Yes. So we could play bingo all day uh, with the acronyms. But in essence, you know, it's a mix of laws, sanctions, private sector initiatives to make sure that terrorist groups are being denied financing or material support. Tracy, are there patterns uh, banks are looking for in this? Absolutely. Yeah. Banks have what are called, you know, red flag indicators. There's a set of things that they determine that will flag a transaction. They have an obligation to report that as a suspicious transaction to a financial intelligence unit who looks into it and furthers it for investigation if it's credible. With regard to terrorism financing, it's often not a single indicator, but rather a pattern of indicators. That is what would be a trigger for a credible terrorism financing investigation. But part of the challenge is that our banks are not terrorism experts, nor are they necessarily built to be that. Terrorism is a really dynamic uh, environment, and understanding emerging trends and patterns is something that requires building capacity within the financial institutions. In some cases, it is costly, um, and banks are, as Noreen said, becoming increasingly risk-averse because the cost of maintaining that compliance, the risks in getting fined for not being compliant, just don't outweigh the benefit and the financial profit of engaging these clients. Shiraz, I just wanted to know um, whether banks are bringing in terrorism experts to find out what patterns uh, you know, terrorists are using in, in, in their banks. I do know of uh, you know, qualified PhD students from departments such as my own who have gone on uh, to work at banks. In fact, I have a very, very good friend who was for a short while affiliated with my center as well, who's gone on to work for a major bank in the, in the United States, uh, looking at some of this stuff, tracing some of these transactions. Uh, Tracy was mentioning there's a series of behaviors or patterns of activity that might alert suspicion, which then triggers a sort of more formal uh, human-led sort of examinations and explorations. I'm always seeing adverts telling me to do more with my money and, and you know, grow my money. And looking at Daesh, you know, they were looking at being around for a long, long time. Were they sophisticated like that? Were they doing a lot with their money? Well, I'm, I'm not sure in terms of, you know, investments or, or things like that in the way that you and I might seek to, to grow our money. I mean, they've certainly looked at cryptocurrencies. Tracy, um, Shiraz is talking about cryptocurrencies. If they're using cryptocurrencies and the dark web and all these secure kind of technologies, can we 
even stop them? Can we find their money? Do we know what they're doing with it? Yeah, um, you're starting to see an uptick of cryptocurrency use with Daesh. I think there was a lot of concern about it early, um, but most recently what you're seeing is reports of foreign terrorist fighters and their family members that are trying to raise funds using cryptocurrency wallets. Uh, I think there are, that affords both opportunities and challenges. So once a terrorist organization starts utilizing financial channels, they are more likely to get caught up in our existing web. Uh, The challenge there is you often have to know what you're looking for. It can be a bit of a needle in a haystack. What it can do is help put together and connect the dots in an investigation. So when law enforcement or intelligence agencies have a suspect, they can go to the financial sector who has a wealth of information about who they're transacting with, how they're engaging, where they're located, where those transactions are going, that can help us build a bigger picture to understand how a terrorist group is operating and where its network and reach is. I'd guess that most people don't want to support Daesh, but sometimes you just don't know where your money is going. Noreen, how do we make sure we don't somehow end up providing them with cash by mistake? I think for for an average person, it's important to remember that if you think funds or things that you're doing might help a terrorist group like Daesh, then be cautious because you don't have to just be funding an attack. If you think you want to be helpful and send blankets to, to ISIS children, that is a um, an act of material support to a terrorist group. So I think it's about raising awareness and, and being um, a bit cautious about um, where your money is going. I know, you know, many, many in the Muslim community during Ramadan will be thinking about zakat, will be thinking about charitable donations. These are all incredibly important and there are fantastic charities out there that are doing important work. But just be aware that, you know, terrorists also know that, you know, people tend to want to do good, right? So they will exploit and abuse seemingly good uh, charitable endeavors. So check the money. Shiraz, Noreen's point about Ramadan and the Muslim Brotherhood and Zakat and, you know, all these feelings you have, you want to help people. Um, You know, are governments stopping false charities? Governments have had a huge challenge in actually trying to address and combat this issue. I remember talking to someone at the Charity Commission here in the UK um, not long after the Syrian conflict began. I'd say we were about four or five years into it. And they said something like, 300 new charities had been registered in uh, in that period of time that was specifically dedicated to the Syrian conflict. And you can imagine the attempt to try and uh, produce compliance and oversight and sort of had rigorous tracing of where that money was going. So there was clearly a fairly um, uh, challenging process there in place for regulatory bodies such as the Charity Commission. And you're right to acknowledge you know, events such as Ramadan, uh, which are particularly important, of course, in the Muslim calendar as being times of giving for the Muslim community. Um, and so that's accentuated the challenge faced by regulatory bodies. If I can add to that, I think the abuse of nonprofit organizations continues to be a threat for certain portions of, of charities. I think another thing that we are noticing um, is an uptick in use of crowdsourcing and particularly social media as a form of fundraising. So donors may very well be unwittingly supporting what they think is a, a campaign to provide medical services, but in fact is benefiting a terrorist organization. 
it's important to kind of keep in mind the scale of this. The number of entities that are engaged are a really, really small portion of the nonprofit sector. And so the mechanisms that we are putting in place really have to be calibrated towards the entities that are vulnerable on the basis of their characteristics and activities, as opposed to imposed upon the sector overall. Um, and the reason for that is that we run the risk of creating kind of really arduous or complicated barriers that hindered the delivery of these critical services provided by nonprofit organizations, which in turn undercuts our goals of kind of advancing broader good governance, human rights, and peace and stability, which is essential to undermining the appeal of terrorist organizations in the first place. CFT extends to the fight against the trade in antiquities. One of the excuses that buyers use is that they didn't know something was stolen, even though it doesn't have the right documentation. Corrado Cortesi and his Interpol unit are also trying to make sure that no one unwittingly contributes to the coffers of terrorism. We created in 1995 the Interpol Stolen Works of Art database that um, is fed by information coming from our uh, police, national police organization through our National Central Bureau. Nowadays, we have in our Interpol Sony Works of Art database 51,000 objects coming from 134 countries. Inside these 51,000 objects, at least 5,000 objects are coming from Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan. And uh, the people before buying an object should check inside our database, also because uh, it's for free. They have only to request through our website to have the username and password that will allow them to check against our database to see before buying an object if this object is coming from an illicit activity or not. Of course, if the object is not inside in our database, doesn't mean that the object it is not stolen because perhaps it was not communicated to Interpol. Or, as is the case of the archaeological objects, the object was illicitly excavated and the illicit provenience is not known because nobody knows about, uh, about these objects. Only the diggers know that they illicitly excavated in some archaeological areas. But what we are trying to tell everywhere and every time that the people before buying an object should check against the Interpol database as well as in some other national register to check the illicit provenience of the objects to be sure that uh, buying this object, they are not financing organized crime or terrorists. This is an ongoing thing with the international community trying to fight all of these sources of cash. Noreen, what are the biggest obstacles facing us when it comes to CFT? So I think political will and I'll say opacity are two key impediments. I think political will is important because there are international laws and sanctions in place. And for in a lot of states, these are only, you know, minimally implemented. And then I come back to something Tracy mentioned is these are small amounts going through informal channels. They're often difficult to trace. And you have to think about the the cost benefit as well, right? How 
to what extent are you going to penalize everybody? And then how do you prove that they knew what they were funding? And a lot of our international policy frameworks early on really focused on the terrorist act. So you could get in trouble for funding an act of terrorism. But nowadays, you know, we've had some sea changes in the international legal and policy framework. It's because we know that, you know, a group like ISIS for their funding, the attack itself may be a small amount, but they may need funding to hire fighters. The focus has shifted beyond funding a specific terrorist attack to funding terrorism much more broadly. So we've moved away from somebody basically giving somebody cash to do something uh, within the framework of terrorism to the general support of terrorism. Tracy, you did uh, some research into East Africa what I wanted to know about this money that Daesh created and, and saved up in the Middle East, is it moving to Africa? In part. Um, so what you see right now is a lot of vying for attention among the various affiliates. Um, however, a good portion of those affiliates, while there have been some financial transactions between core and affiliates, many of them are self-financing and are continuing to be self-financing. Um, you are seeing... As Daesh loses territory, it's it's trying to conceal its money and diversify its revenue streams. So you are starting to see some investments in legitimate business. In particular, that includes gold markets in Central Africa. Um, but it does also include currency exchanges, automobile dealers, uh, a couple of other businesses that they are, you know, looking to invest their money and make money as well as concealing it. If I can just go around the houses with uh, each of you, uh, finally, and, and just ask you, what are you concerned about when it comes to money with this organisation going into the future? Shiraz? For me, I think the electronic phase of this going forwards is only going to grow. I think it's pretty clear that uh, there's going to be a much more enhanced engagement by all aspects of society with things like cryptocurrencies and governments haven't yet fully uh, grappled with this uh, uh, for, from the benign perspective, let alone from the more malignant aspects. And I think that's going to be an area we've seen organizations like ISIS um, continually innovate and continually be early adopters of all kinds of disruptive technologies and to um, be very, very um, effective, really, in the use of sort of malevolent creativity with new things that become available to them. So I would say this is an area where we've got to uh, continue to uh, invest some resource in terms of intellectual capital and policy response to ensure that they're not yet again at the forefront of exploiting another thing. Uh, Noreen, what would you say you were worried about um, in terms of financing for this organisation going forwards? My concern is that um, unnuanced, ill-conceived counterterrorism policies and, and CFT measures will inadvertently drive the funds um, into places that are harder to find. We will inadvertently hurt the activity that we most need, you know, humanitarian action. And because it will be so diffuse, we won't have actually targeted the, the financing. My other concern, as you say, is that we have one playbook, 
but different countries are not really um, implementing it in the same way. And so I think we need more concerted international action to address this, especially as we see other groups like the far right um, and violent far right movement learn some of these lessons about how ISIS raised money, how Al-Qaeda mobilized. And we will see likely some similar mobilization and we will need to make sure our playbook then is fit for purpose. Tracy, same question. Uh, are you worried about the future of money with this organization? The UN has estimated that Daesh has a reserve of about $100 million, which is by no means a small amount, particularly given that it's lost its overhead costs, right? It no longer has to pay as many salaries and maintain roads. So what it can do with that $100 million uh, is potentially more concerning. Um, I think in that regard, what, what worries me is that their propaganda machine is still active, that it is still producing and potentially attracting supporters. And so it is moving to a financial model that is hard to disrupt um, because it is decentralized, because it is dispersed, um, and that it is, as Noreen said, likely to go underground. And so the potential that Daesh has to serve as a continued agitator and disruptor of conflicts around the world uh, remains really concerning to me. Complex ways of sourcing money, complex strategies to cut off the supply of that cash. I'd like to thank Tracy Derner, Noreen Chowdhury-Fink, Shiraz Ma and Corrado Catesi for sharing their knowledge and experience to shed some light on how Daesh generates money and what we're doing to stop it. That's it for this edition of Taking Apart Terror. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and follow or subscribe so you get every episode, including the next one, when we look at the ways that violent extremists communicate and we ask, do terrorists use apps? I'm Adnan Sarwal. Until the next time, goodbye.